Hello, welcome to the Worked Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Washbourne, the founder of ReadyTech. Look, I'm always looking and seeking out new people to have lively discussions with, uh, particularly those that are bringing new thinking to the worlds of work, education, and skills. If my guest doesn't fit that bill, I'm not sure who does. So please hang around and enjoy the show. So my guest today is a man on a major mission, and his name is Tom Moore, the founder of With You, With Me. Following his own time in the military, Tom founded his now global company from Australia to solve two main problems. Firstly, his company transitions veterans from the military to the mainstream workforce, and secondly, solves the skill shortage for organizations in the growing areas of cybersecurity, data and robotic process automation. In doing so, Tom has uncovered a ton of learnings and new ideas that are equally as applicable to the wider world of skilling our workforce. And that's what I explored with him on this podcast. I'm going to warn you up front, this is a captivating podcast, but it's also confronting. But it's hard to argue that what Tom is doing isn't working. In fact, With You, With Me has grown over 13,000% and last year took out the number one spot on the Deloitte Fast 500 in the Southern Hemisphere, the first Australian company to do so. If you go to Tom's LinkedIn profile, you'll see two words that really stand out. Be fierce, and that's exactly what he is. And in my view, that's what we need right now to challenge our thinking. So here's the podcast with Tom Moore. So Tom Moore, what is up? How much, man? What about you? I'm ex- I'm exceedingly well. I'm very excited to talk to you. I've had the great pleasure of spending a fair amount of time with you, and um, yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. But I'm also partially terrified. Do you, is that common for people to feel that way? Yeah, I've been described as polarizing, first by my mum, but I think by most people that meet me. Um, one of the things I learned really young is that I am a monster. And what does that mean? We'll talk about it today, but. <sighs> If you're a monster, you should act gratuitously. So, you know, one of the reasons I joined the army is that, well, the only way that you can be a monster and act gratuitously is join the army. So, yeah, I think just the just the simple sort of intensity that I somehow fortunately or unfortunately have has made me adapt to it. That's really interesting. I think uh, I certainly see that you're applying that now to your career and the business. It'd be really interesting to go back and understand your own personal journey through growing up in the education system through to starting a business through the military mm. which is I think really informed the work that you're doing now and what you're passionate about at your company so can you talk us through that story well it's a pretty interesting story I think in a lot of ways I think I'm you could probably describe me as pretty damaged or uh, pretty scarred uh, but I think most people have that journey but are just oblivious to it so when I grew up I have two parents I would say, Uh, that my father is a loud man, very good punter too, by the way. You'd probably get along with him. He's a good guy. Um, But he's quietly generous. Quietly generous uh, is that there is a substantial amount of people in his family that he pays for and no one knows about it. And he never takes any kudos and he never talks about it. I've never seen anything like that anywhere else. Uh, My mother, I would say, is uh, significantly compassionate by taking actions in ways that the normal person wouldn't. So 
she would be compassionate to the vulnerable by making herself vulnerable. Um, so I have a very powerful upbringing. Uh, we were a very uh, low-class family that became a very not low-class family by the time I was 16. But um, they taught me one thing, and they both have one thing in common, which is they're protectors of people that don't ask to be protected but need to be. So the rules I took for them were a few. One, you're a monster. You're a loudmouth, opinionated person that's going to tell people to F off. Was it like that really early in school oh, as yeah. well? Yeah. 100%. Right. Um, and you better use that for good. So you better be a monster that acts fortuitously because otherwise you're not my son. You were born that way, you think? I 100% think I was born that way. I was either raised that way as well, um, which I think is pretty interesting. Like, what are your thoughts on this? I remember being like seven or eight years old and my father would have the CEO of Woolworths over and he'd ask me my opinion on what they should put in a store. That's odd. Like, that's a real odd thing, isn't it? Like, I, I, uh, the second thing they taught me is that um, the meek shall rule the earth. What that means is that you need to have a sword, but you should keep it sheathed. And to me, that's... Uh, I will only use this sword in the minimum, most necessary way possible if you push me or other people around. But I won't just use it willy-nilly. So I learned that from them. I didn't, they didn't tell me that, but you could see it happen, which is pretty interesting uh, because you know, my dad didn't finish high school. He got expelled twice, uh, became a door-to-door -door cigarette salesman, ran a pizza hut in the KFC at once, and uh, didn't go to university, but won the Lend-Lease Chairman Award at 24. And then he made them a lot of money. But he didn't keep that money. It's very interesting. Everyone else in his family has been a teacher. Uh, so the third thing I learned from that family was, um, and everyone in my mom's family had been in the military, the third thing I learned from that family was make sure you mentor the young always. So by the time I'm sort of like 11 and 12, I've got to coach a junior soccer team or whatever it is. They made me do it. It's very really interesting. Like it's, they're very good at it, both of them, um, and it's had a complete effect on me in a way that I probably can't describe other than actions. Uh, the next thing they taught me was, uh, the army taught me this, is that my mission and my men and women come before myself. Uh, and that's actually from a, a US Delta Force or you know, Special Forces guy. And, and that I think really defines how I live, which is duty first, but not um, in the event that you can choose between completing the mission, helping someone in the team or your own career, you gotta pick that number one, it's completing the mission first. Don't worry about offending people that work for you. Just complete it first. Two, put everyone else before you. And then last but not least, deal with yourself. That's why you're in charge. Uh, I learned that. Um, and the last thing, or well, there's two things that my, my father tells me all the time and still tells me is don't be a lawyer. <laughs> he goes, I, I, why, why that? Like he goes, you're never going to follow the rules anyway. So why the hell would you like to write them? That's and he goes, how many rules do we have left to write? He goes, there can't be too many. Uh, right now we're just writing and re-unwriting and unwriting and rewriting rules again. And it's really frustrating to him. Like he just can't understand why we just keep creating lawyers. Uh, and then the last one, which is very cunning, I think of him, but very innovative. Uh, he told us from the age of eight, don't do anything you wouldn't want on the front page of a newspaper. And he told me when I was eight. You know, Have you stuck to that, Tom? Oh, well, I'd, I'm quite comfortable with having everything on the front page of a newspaper. One of the things they do when they check your security clearance is the ability to leverage you. So you can be whatever you want as long as you just don't care. Like, 
Um, so my life is I uh, I struggled with fitting in with people and then eventually I just stopped struggling with fitting in with people because why do I need to? Uh, so like if you think about that thing, but how timely is that comment though? Now this dude said it when I was eight. I was like 23 years ago. You have a guy going, hey dude, people are watching. You better be confident when they put you up there and you better hope that you know you have the right values and the right ideals and those reasons for your action. And if there wasn't, feel free to deal with the consequence of that. Amazing self-awareness. Yeah. It's pretty insane, right? Yeah, really insane. Especially I, when you're eight and you're sitting there going, well, I just, <laughs> I just want to have some of these, you know, um, I just want to have some of these Oreos. Like, what are you doing, dude? Like, what does this mean? Why are you telling me this profound thing? So that's different education. Education taught me a few things. Um, just to finish your question. Is the duty, do you feel, is to the individual your community, your country, global or all of those? I think everyone has a duty. Well, I think humans are responsible for themselves and for everyone else, period. We're probably in a time where individualism has been on the rise for some time. Yeah, 100%. So we don't see quite as many people maybe that have that, are quite as duty-bound as you. Let's go back to the start of coming out of the military. Mm. Do you want me to talk about of, education though? Because that's a weird thing. Let's do education. Let's yeah. take it. I want to take it wherever you want to take so it. So like when I went to school, just to finish off that story, uh, I was very quiet, very shy. So, and I got told that there was something wrong with me. Bottom uh, quarter percent of the state, according to the basic skills test when I was year nine, uh, there is something wrong with your son. I remember the meeting. I thought I was getting in there to get an award. Fantastic. I uh, finished first on the test. Yeah. What's this? Um, and the, the big thing that I worked out was that uh, I came out of that and there was this teacher called Barbara Boyer. And this is why te like teachers that are great at teaching are very important. She told me something simple. She said that you need to learn to communicate with people because you don't. You know, I was like, okay. And every day after school for two hours, we're going to say everything that you learned today three times because getting well at school is just comprehension. You don't like comprehension because it's boring but you need to do it in order to succeed. What an amazing thing to hook you out like that. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize how amazing it was at the time. I don't think my parents, that's my parents just thought they were getting some special treatment or they concocted it. God knows the amount of times they've engineered me. But the, um, the simple thing out of it was for two hours every day, this teacher is just making me say things three times. I then do the basic skills test in year five. If you're from New South Wales, you do it again. Top quarter percent of the state. So what I learned about education is really simple. Um, you need to learn how to master systems Two, once you master it you got to learn to communicate communicate is being able to articulate what you think when you think it be able to research argue and not be afraid to be on the contrary which we don't even use in conversation anymore um, and i don't think any of it has anything to do with how to win at employment which is skills so I finished all of that and I knew I was a monster and I knew I really wasn't going to fit in. So what do you do with a monster? You join the army. And, you know, because I wanted to be a noble one. It's not like I didn't want to, I don't want to be a bad person. Uh, so I joined the army at 18 like everyone in my family did on my mother's side for hundreds of years. Uh, and it was terrifying. You know, it's an interesting place. It's a great place. How long were you in the military? About seven and a half years. Um, the interesting thing about how the military thinks about talent is they test you 
they see your potential, they train you, and then they, as an ordinary person, they give you your friends. You know, you don't get to pick them, and or coworkers, you don't get to pick them, and you know, they help you do extraordinary things at a young age. But the biggest thing that they really do is they take everything off you and they make you earn it back. So you become accountable for yourself and the people around you, and that is pretty important i think i don't think that gets taught anymore anyway isn't that what the term with you with me means uh, yeah it means i've got your back mm. uh, effectively yeah. yeah from memory i'm sure i read that did you end up running training programs or overseeing skills programs in the army in the army yeah well the army's uh well, i don't know if it's an rt anymore but it's a vocational organization totally. that spends all of its time training and 10 percent of its time doing the business if you want to put it that way which is a lovely thing to be honest, uh, the less, you know, arguing is way better than fighting. So diplomacy is always way better than war uh, is something that, I'll, that I'm a firm believer in. But uh, the army, uh, when you get to become a supervisor, you effectively get to become an instructor. That doesn't happen anywhere else. They train you to be an instructor. You get a special badge. Uh, and we believe in competency-based training. And the army is very, very stringent on getting people to proficiency. Because if, you, if you're not proficient, which I, you know, easily can be described as you could do the job without supervision or the skill or the, the action, well, that's exactly what you need in combat. Because if you go into combat with someone that can't do something without supervision and you put on the layer of combat or the layer of complexity that currently exists, then um, uh, good luck. And it's never the person that stuffs the skill up. It's generally someone around them that unfortunately pays the consequence. So the military is by far the, one of the most, or if not the, in particular the Australian Army, one of the most progressive institutions in how to build proficiency at the speed that the enemy improves. So they are very, very agile at how they train. They are very, very holistic in how they look at it. And they create what I call building blocks. So they build teams. They don't build individuals. That is um, something that's easily transferable to industry, but doesn't generally happen. But they're very good at it, yeah. So, by I'd been an instructor in a number of areas. Uh, one was at an uh, for our uh, what we call our uh, junior infantry commanders course, where it's the first time where they command sections and teams as an as an infantry soldier. So, uh, someone that you would consider a combat soldier. Um, we've done stuff at the recruit school, uh, and then we did more advanced stuff that you would consider officer-based training around uh, what we learned in Afghanistan. So there was here's stuff that we learned very quickly distributed to those that need it most. Here's what we know is great and enhanced to our supervisors and here's training recruits. I've sort of had a cattle at all three of them. Knowing what I know about with you, with me, your company, I see how much of that has become applicable as you've moved out into the, into the broader workforce. Tell, tell me about the transition for you and other veterans of coming out of the military into civilian life, mm. into what we might call the mainstream workforce. What those challenges? I mean, I, I'd imagine that there's a, a huge adjustment in that in that loss of the structure and the and maybe the discipline, the camaraderie, the purpose that they have. So, tell us about that. Well, I'll talk about mine first. It's a bit easier uh, or harder, depending on how you look at it. So, uh, I transitioned from the Australian Army after seven and a half years of service uh, medically. Um, I didn't want to leave. I'd be there right now if I could. Really? Wow. This place isn't fun. Um, it's boring. It's rather, really? it's rather boring to be frank. Uh, the, you know, what do we do? We wake up, we have stimulants, 
we talk to people all day around tables and then we go home and watch content pre-packaged. Like that's pretty boring. We used to be out in the middle of nowhere uh, seeing the world. Um, but I didn't want to leave. And I got made to the, to leave because I, I got injured. And I had a relatively successful career and a few things happened. Um, the first thing happened like bang. I gave up on a course. I was exhausted. First time I ever quit my life. Last time I ever quit my life. The second thing was uh, bang again. Tom, your body's gone. Uh, you won't be able to walk effectively uh, ever again. You have severe osteoarthritis that's created by hereditary disease. It's not, it's not created by what you're doing. Um, and then bang again, uh, we're shifting your posting. We're taking you out of your tribe, which is this unit that you're in, and we're sending you to a posting in the middle of nowhere. Good luck. Okay, sure, I'll go. And then um, bang again. So I've been hit four times. You get better, man. You know, I said, it's not going to happen. I'm going to go get my own stem cell. I'm going to pay for it myself and I will prove you wrong. And I got back to an ability to run. Uh, and I was on the combat assessment line. We call it the uh, combat, it's called the PESA, but it's effectively a, an assessment that tests your ability to uh, fight by assessing how you go with load-bearing equipment. Um, and my knees, when I got up to the line for the pack march, both knees blew out, fell over, done. That was the world telling me. We are not letting you do this. No matter how much rehab you've done, no matter what you've done, you're done. It's, it's gone from you now. And, you know, it was at that point, I don't think I've ever felt more weak and ashamed of something in my life. So I, uh, I got out of the Australian Army Took leave without pay. I had a I had a year left of my posting, but I wasn't going to live it. Like I wasn't going to survive. I I knew that I wasn't going to survive. I was, I was I would say highly uh, suicidal. Um, and that's not a place you ever want to be. By the way, if you if you feel that weak and ashamed, you confront the monster of monsters. And you know who the monster of monsters is? It's fucking you. And that's terrifying. There's nothing else left. It's just you. And, you know, if you know much about the story, it's the, there's like there's this thing where you have the hero, the fool, and the adversary. You know, you've got to stumble around and be the fool to become the hero. So you've got to make some mistakes and get there. But when you get to the adversary, it's like, that's you. And that's a toxic person. And I met that person and I was terrified of it. Uh, and I came out and I applied for hundreds of jobs. And I couldn't get a job. I couldn't understand it. Because I came, I third at university in a Bachelor of Commerce. Uh, I came second at Duntroon. Like, so I'm not, and I could probably, and I could sell. Did you get to the interview stage? At Duntroon? No, through no, the job I, applications. I, think I get to one interview stage uh, with a bank, I won't mention it. Uh, and they told me I didn't have the financial experience to be a security guard. Now, if I'm coming out as a junior army officer that's managed people, which is somewhat held in some regard, and maybe a lot more in the United States than here, but somewhat held in, in British sort of Anglo society is something more like something that's pretty professional. It's considered a professional career. Uh, what the hell are my men and women that are soldiers going to do? You know, if I can't get a job for $35,000 a year, okay. Well, I'm not going on welfare payments because I'm 26 years old. I'm not going on Veterans Affairs benefits because I don't need them. My body just doesn't want to do what a soldier does anymore. That doesn't mean I can't do other things. So um, effectively, society is rejecting me at this point. Like, you know, obviously my father's a salesman and my sister's a salespeople and they are very good at it. So I learned, I can do two things probably really well. 
one, I can piece things together in a system and I can tell a story, probably because I'm from Western Sydney. That's about it. Everything else I suck at. Like in the history of the world, I would be bad at everything else. So um, I can sell too. Like I know how to maneuver this system and I can't get through it. So then you start looking at the data, right? And we started to look at it and we went, hmm. Who's we? Uh, me and Luke Ricks, who's the co-founder of our business, and Sam Baines, who was in the military with me. And we started to go, you know, well, it seems that uh, veterans uh, have doubled the uh, probability that they'll commit suicide compared to the average adult. Okay. And when that data has been taken from people recently, that's not like uh, fighting Vietnam and coming back. Like it's like right now we had 15,000 people deployed to the Middle East over 15 years and they did some great work as much as it's not talked about and they stopped a lot of things here. Um, double, right? And then, you know, we worked out that it, they were six times more likely to be unemployed. And then we worked out that, uh, you know, roughly 350,000 of them are on welfare. Now, to think about that for a second, 5,000 transition a year. That's a lot of people uh, going into that pool. And how then- many, How many in the U, just out of interest, massive, massive military, how many in the US transition per year? 260,000, right? Big yeah. number, yeah. Yeah, huge. Like, and th then the thing we worked out too is like 22% of veterans in DVA are accessing mental health services. Right, okay. Out of the 15,000 people that deployed in the Middle East, it would make it a nice narrative that they have a lot of high amounts of post-traumatic stress disorder. 1,500 would be, I would suggest, that have been in kinetic combat. So what's going on? Um, they're sad, definitely. I would say that there are people that have legitimate cases of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and I hope they get the care they need, but the majority of them are getting rejected from society as they leave a different one because ours, ours isn't connected. We have a functional organization that's creative, that treats you like an asset, that gives you friends, that helps you achieve meaning in somewhat, some way. And we come out of it and we go, huh, most companies are growing at, you know, two to 5%. It's not growing, probably just functional. Two, you know, one in five people are diagnosed in Australia with a mental health problem. 4.7 years it takes from completing your university degree to get a meaningful career that's requisite of it. So by the time you're 26, you're becoming an adult with no skills. Like used to be 16, you'd learn those lessons. You know, are you really going to shake things up at that point? Because you're 26 years old, you're probably thinking about kids, aren't you? So, you know, we're coming out of a world where we've had all that from when we were 18 and there's nothing really special about it other than the sheer fact that we treat people as an asset and we can't work out how to communicate with the system. And what we worked out, and this started with you with me, is that this experience I'm having isn't because Tom was a monster and he's difficult to deal with. Um, isn't because I can't be an employee. I was a good employee for the army, uh, which everyone thinks that I can't be. It's actually maybe veterans aren't the problem. So, and then you look at, well, what is the problem? Well, maybe it's the transition process from the military, which is like akin to the career shifting that's going on now with the pandemic, right? Effectively is. It's that you've got large groups of people having to reassess what they'd like to do. Or school leavers. Yeah, same thing. It's getting harder and harder, right? And we looked at it this way. And, you know, in general, I don't think there's anyone malicious running this process, but I can tell you what's going on. 
So the process is mainly uh, run as a compliance and governance process to set you up financially, to make sure that you have the benefits the government has set you up on. But in terms of uh, getting a job, the, the closest thing is um, helping you write a LinkedIn and resume, which we all know if it's a profession, those things do not help you get a job. Now, it's great that the government is connecting you into their services. Brilliant. They've earned it, right? One of the big things that the Romans learned is if you don't actually provide veterans their services, they'll coup d'etat and take over the country. Uh, so, you know, mate, let us be citizens. Like, you know, I got it. You know, there's people that have been injured. There's people that have done things that are at the average ordinary level that you wouldn't know. And they've done a great job. And I saw that time and time again going through the army. So I, I'm all cool with that. But if you think what getting a meaningful job of requisite salary allows you to do is it gives you time to reconnect with your family, reconnect with the community, and think about what you'd like to do next. If you don't have that, it doesn't work. And the reason that they adopt that structure is that they've taken it from outplacement structures that exist for big companies, which majority of outplacement is big companies treated you like a commodity. We're going to lower the risk of you saying something bad about us or suing us. So that's the model being run, okay? And the cool thing is, I don't think there's anything malicious here. What happens though is, if you have a system that's mildly going out of control and sensible people don't speak up, then it goes completely out of control and breaks. And the problem is here, is that why don't sensible people speak up? And the answer is, well, it's just a lot easier to see if it blows over. And secondly, well, I don't really want to create any enemies. And then what unfortunately happens is a collapse of it. And people can tell me that it hasn't collapsed. Well, two times the, the probability of you killing yourself in one of the most wealthy countries in the world. Shocking. Two, five to six times the unemployment rate of the average person their age, even though most of them have a bachelor's education. Three, well, that many people, 22%, accessing mental health services, and that many people, 300, you know, I think it's probably 350,000 accessing uh, DBA in a way for welfare. That is not a system that's working. That's, so, the, that's the other pandemic, right? Well, it's correct. It's not the system that's working, Mark. And the reason it's not working is that what happens is that, all right, well, maybe we should focus on employment. Maybe we don't want to upset people. Maybe we just keep want to go this way and change things slightly. And what happens when you do that is tyrannical bureaucracies that are at the mid-level make the decisions. So why we started with you with me was a very, very simple thing. The majority of the, the issue in the market was about veterans need to translate their skills and veterans need are great because they're on time. No, veterans are great because they can solve complex projects that no one could ever solve without the information. Don't, like, was I on time here? No, I was probably like five minutes late. I haven't been on time since I've been out of the army. What are you talking about? That's not the most valuable thing I've ever done, be on time. How condescending is that? You know, it's condescending. So let's change the narrative from, you know, there, there is a mental health problem. Uh, no, there is a, they're not re-entering society problem. And maybe society isn't functioning, allowing anyone to enter. Maybe it's really hard to enter. And it is. From a whole bunch of different versions, we can we can look at all different types of people that are struggling to enter uh, Sydney and Melbourne because they in Melbourne they went to a different school and in Sydney they went to a different university and they're from a different suburb. So 
like my big, my big ping was, well, we're not going to take this anymore, right? So an unsensible person like me is now going to say no. And we said no. And what we did was we presented data that said the opposite. We said that the real problem was unemployment and that people weren't getting meaningful careers in order for them to settle, help themselves out. These are some of the most resilient people you've ever met in your life. You don't think they're going to sort out the rest of the world Well, once they've got time to do it? No, but if you go from being a high-powered team leader that used to run projects to being a, someone that's pouring beers uh, and you don't want to pour the beers, great if you want to pour them, and then your partner leaves you and your kids don't talk to you anymore, then that's actually happening in a systemic level. So we said no. And we said that actually veterans are the best talent in the market. And here's the data to say why. And to veterans, use your data to be successful. Earn skills that no one else has. And that upset a lot of people. But I tell you what, I'd rather upset a lot of people than see any more people I know their lives fall apart around them. So I'm quite happy to upset people that I've never met to make sure that the people that have served this country can continue to serve and perform and not fall apart. So, you know, and that sort of relates back to my point. I didn't have a, I didn't really have a goal until I saw that data. And now our goal uh, has evolved from just helping veterans to solving underemployment which really, really means um, you need to work out what you want to do when you grow up. And that's a two-year conversation rather than a 10-year conversation. It should be based off data. This is what the market needs. This is what I'm great at. Two, earn skills, not theoretical knowledge. Three, take on the world. And we're, we're taking that message in our platform and we're now taking it to people outside of veterans Um uh, just because I think it's the right thing to do. What what I'm loving about the podcast is firstly, I've had a shiver went right down my spine three times. And the second thing is I had like 20 odd, 15, 20 things in my head I was going to ask you and I've asked you two, I think so far. Yeah, I um, I just, you know, I could be talking a lot of shit. <laughs> Not to- I, I, well, look, you know, the, the big thing is like, um, you know, well, now that it's broken and the system's broken, then really someone that's not a sensible person needs to fix it. So why did you go, it might be a really, this might be a really stupid question. Why did you end up going to digital skills as the first place to be for the transition? Because no one could lie that people were good at it. So then you can create the narrative that actually the way you're doing it is better. The, the simple is uh, from a, the easy way you get more people jobs is looking at supply and demand in the first instance. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have enough people that had cybersecurity skills. And it was really simple to say, hey, someone that's a veteran who's done security can learn cybersecurity. It's a nice link, right? Um, what we uncovered- It seems a very, very clear link when they also probably know what the bad guys are doing, right? You know, their their job is to be the shepherd to protect the flock. Um, and thank God we have It's them. a beautiful match. Well, thank God we have them. Like, you know, I- the, the big thing was that if we gave them skills, then they're going to stop telling us the only thing we have is on time. Like that's what it, how it started. It's on a, it's on a, we have a picture of it in our office where we're like, uh, we talk about the business model, which is like linking people, training people, getting them employed. Uh, so that was what, a, what our matching algorithms and everything have become. And, you know, the second thing was need a company name. We better go to the pub. So we went to the pub to work out the name. And then the third thing was what you just said. 
which was, well, if we just consider this an economic thing and we just use economics over trying to translate veterans. So I don't care what veteran, who they are and where they're from, if they're good at cybersecurity or they have cybersecurity skills or we give them to them because then it's just about I have someone that you don't have. And they so happen to be a veteran. Because you, you could have trained them in, uh, you could have be trained them in traditional trades, for instance. Yeah. It seems also a very strong translatability well, very translatability of the, the skills and the training. Well, the only, just yeah. as an example. Well, the only the reason we worked out that didn't work is that the telecom market was hard, hardly casualized. So it wasn't an effective market to get people into. And we made some mistakes there. But then the second thing was, you know, I could get you a salary for ninety to $100,000 a year in three months versus being a tradie at 45. And if the average person leaving the military is roughly around 26 to 32 years old and has two kids, they're not going to be able to feed them on an apprenticeship salary. Understanding what I do about with you, with me, the first part, of course, is is understanding the the cap underlying capabilities, the strengths of the, of the individual, mm. and also a word that you use a lot is potential. So tell us a bit about that. What happens when someone comes into the framework or the system? Yeah, it's good. So like the easiest way to think about it is think about how we think about how do we lower risk with employment now, which is a really bad problem. So if you think about when we talk about humans in a business, we call them human resources or human capital. That means that they're a commodity. That means I'm happy to trade them. I don't consider them an asset. But if you think about the economy, it's mostly a services business and the organizations that are better at making their assets more productive being people are actually highly more highly profitable. But then no one ever tells you. They don't link it. They call it culture and the rest of it and, you know, whatever. It's, but it really, it's just like, no, we, we, we train our staff. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> so why don't you just tell me that when I started a business instead of pretending that there's anything valuable in any MBA. But the, the, the sort of thing that, that jumped out to us was, well, the way that you then lower risk of a commodity is experience handling that commodity or someone else that's handled it. So word of mouth referral for a job or putting more and more experience in it, right? And what that creates is inequality. So for word of mouth referral, if I'm from Mossman, good luck getting me a job at an investment bank if I'm not from Mossman. That's not going to happen because I actually don't do it. Like, to be frank, like they're just, you know, it's not happening. So let's go to the other version, which is, well, how do we lower experience? No one ever breaks down experience. Experience is made up of three things. Confidence, institutional knowledge, and which can only be gained if you've worked there before, by the way, or on the tool that they've got, or proficiency of skill. So you can train proficiency before someone starts a job. And I can tell you right now, if they're proficient in something, they're going to be confident. So the only thing they're missing is institutional knowledge. And everyone knows in the first 100 days of joining an organization, you figure out what your job is. So what we said when we assess potential is the most valuable thing in the market right now is not going to be experienced for the next 100 years because we can build a billion-dollar company in four years. But we're training people to be someone in 26. It doesn't match. The 10-year model of getting someone ready for a profession does not work anymore. So how do we speed that up? Well, we focus on skills and we take some risk, right? And how we take more risk is better data. And the data that we care about is I'll go out and skill test and aptitude test the best people at that trade, the master of the trade, and I'll work out what makes them special. The cool thing about um, becoming a tradie, uh, say a construction, uh, someone involved in construction, is that if you pick the wrong trade, 
The guys on site direct you to one of the other subbies. He's like, hey, dude, you're going to be a better plumber than a carpenter. Come work for me. But no one talks about that conversation because we don't see it and it's not visualized anywhere. But when it comes to technology, that doesn't exist. It's very murky. It's very hard to navigate. People are calling it the future of work. It's not really the future of work. It's right now. And really, the, the model that we've built talent doesn't match the billion-dollar company in four years, right? So we need to speed it up. So what we do is we test people's skills and we say, well, in order to learn this skill, you've got to have these aptitude strengths. Uh, and these aptitude, aptitude is what we define as potential. So the ability to learn a skill faster than everyone else. Um, and if you've got similar aptitude to the person that's great at that skill, you can learn it much faster. So, and how we create aptitude is a little bit different. So aptitude testing has been used in two areas. One, to create a surge workforce for the military. So it still supports this recruiting process to this day. They are the most uh, longest, they are the longest users of asset-based hiring for surge workforce. The second way it's been done is the United States and they've pushed it further. They made it about employment benefits. To get people off employment benefits, they tested their aptitude. That then became the SAT and picking a vocation. The problem is, is that the SAT is connected to higher ed, which is not vocation. So they're actually sort of misusing it. Although it's more valuable than what anyone else has ever done, by the way. Uh, so you, this test of aptitude can be done without 12 years of study at high school. Like you can, you can do these tests. They're made up of your crystallized and your fluid intelligence. Your fluid intelligence is the ability to solve problems and connecting underlying logic. Uh, you would call it street smarts. School effectively neuters this capability for most people. So the people that have the highest fluid intelligence have either really, really strong hobbies where they take risk, like horse racing, for example, uh, uh, or betting on the footy, like seriously, or they're running a business, right? Um, or criminals, right? And then on the other side of it is, well, crystallized intelligence uh, is really what you would call IQ. The one big thing that's now more important in IQ is digital symbol coding. So if you're a smart person and you get good at using a computer earlier, you're way smarter than everyone else, like period. So, and I don't mean using a computer to tell people about your life. I mean it actually to enhance whatever job you're doing. So the smartest, you know, trade companies at the moment are working out how to do prefab houses so they can build it all on one side to cut costs. That's using technology. That hasn't been sort of done before. You're using technology to enable you in your job. So how we do it differently is we have this aptitude test that's matched to skills that then any unique job can be created. And what that says to an employer and an individual is actually you can learn these skills, but don't learn the others. Like learn what, like make the decision, but you need to understand that actually, although everyone at school has told you, you can do everything, welcome to life, you can't. And you know, and one of the things that I've learned about running a company is that, and Mark, sorry, I didn't really understand it when I heard Mark Cuban say it, it was all about, Someone is coming to kick your ass every day and that's happening in our market. So you better work out what you're good at, what the market needs, how you can quickly get there. Aptitude linked to skill is the best way to do it. And if you get them to competent, you can, get them to, you can even get them to proficient through on-the-job training faster than people that are using an experience option in a murky world with no training development programs. So the core of our sort of business is testing people to work out their potential match to industry's need and telling them that so they can pick and training them in 200 hours. Yeah, I really wanted to get into that because like everything you've said about aptitude and testing and using that data yeah. makes total sense. How did you think about creating the training when you started the company? What have you learned along the way? What is a high quality industry ready skills piece of training look like in your company? For like just technology training in general, I would say not many people are good at it. 
So if you just think about the Industrial Revolution, there's been like four of them, I think. It takes about 100 years to, for humanity to use whatever they created properly. So when I say, what does that mean? It means that the economies of scale that have been created by the device have felt across the whole population. So now we have light, right? But the ability, the local electrician can plug it in. Like, so he's got a better business and then they're producing better lights. That's what I mean by that. So if you think about, um, uh, let's say IT, it's been roughly around for 47 years out of 100. And if you think about uh, data technology, it's been roughly around for seven. So, you know, on top of IT, we're now manipulating it. And if you think about the bit in the middle, which is software, it's roughly been a little bit less than IT around the same time. So we're really not good at this yet. So why the hell would I listen to anyone in the market after I realized that? And what we found was that most technology training was product-based or compliance-based. I really, and why wouldn't it be? Because the product-based, well, like vendor-based training, yeah. right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And why wouldn't it be? If they could use your products better, then they solve more problems and they make more money. Um, and the real interesting thing we found out was that uh, it's like, like the, so the Australian Army doesn't train you to just fire a rifle. It trains you to be a soldier and they can fire any weapon system to have the lethality that they need to win the land battle. All right? So the best way to describe how tech training is done is it just teaches you how to drive a Tesla. When you get out of that Tesla though, you don't know anything about cars or anything about driving any other car and that skill is not translatable. The second thing of it is, is our compliance. So you know how to drive a car that's a Tesla in certain road rules, but you don't know what that road rule means. And that's pretty much sums up technology training outside of higher ed. And higher ed um, looks at technology training, I would say in Australia, it's a little bit different to the US where it's a focus on computer science over skills. And that's exactly what it should be. There, are, there is more science than computer in that degree, and that's exactly what it should be. But don't tell kids to do it to become a software developer because it's not teaching anything about software design. It's teaching a few tools, but please teach kids to build quantum computers. That's the difference, right? So, you know, we want them to build the next thing, not manage and administrate the thing that we've got. So that's actually a vocational trade. Um, and so what we found out is that, all right, well, the army is a competency-based learning model that gets you to proficiency. And it has on-the-job learning, the journeyman approach, the boot camp, pre-testing, and it doesn't operate its RTO the same way that governance TMP would work. Even if there's a TMP that someone's writing for me, I can train whatever I want to get it done. I've seen, um, I had a mate that was a commander in Iraq and they got given this, uh, these young soldiers got given this Russian weapon system that they had to teach the Iraqi army. These guys are like 21, 19 years old. They spend nine hours watching uh, YouTube videos in Russian with subtitles, understanding how the system works, and then gave the best lesson I've ever seen on this system. That's how quick that they train because they train you how to be an instructor, they train you how to design a course, and they train you how to teach anyone anything up to a competency level. And then the way that we engage in collective training drives us to proficiency. So fast information sharing uh, and Getting our hands dirty is a really good way to say it. So we just thought, now that we're testing people, why don't we just work out how let's design our courses by what skills are absolutely essential to get into this job and then build competency-based learning to get there. And for the first two and a half years, we sucked at it. <laughs> and the reason we sucked at it is we listened to what everyone was telling us. 
So it was like, oh, we need this. So we build it and we'd be like, oh, actually, you didn't need that at all. And that's really terrifying me that you actually don't actually do your job properly. So we started to do work and we started to deploy what we called squads, which was putting veterans on the ground with the tech skills. And that sped up the same way the army learns. Like, this is so interesting, I think, for training companies to understand that, which I think is the future, is that you're also really right. deeply linked with the eventual outcome well, and getting the feedback and using that in the whole cycle. That's how you make a great system. Yeah. So we build these courses about the army's feedback loop, right? Which is the most powerful thing outside of the boot camp model and the testing. Yeah. And we worked out we had to do it, so we did it. And, you know, was our cybersecurity course great first year? No. Second year, okay. Third year, a little bit better than okay. Fourth year, good. Next year, I think it'll be great. And I've probably upset everyone in that process. But I don't know any company ever that's created any product ever that's got it right that quickly. Um, the model that we operate now is uh, we we 80% of our courses are practical. We teach you how to do the job based off the skills that are the most applied. We get you into that job and then we keep training you. Uh, and that training is completely for free for veterans. If you own all the platform and you own the training and the content and the practical labs, the economies of scale drastically change. If you outsource it to someone, the time it takes to negotiate with them, the pain it takes to negotiate with them, all of those things just take too long. So you're better off taking a punt, building it, just getting reiteratedly better as you put people in employment than do it the other way. Uh, we haven't done everything right, but we've landed on that we're pretty good at cybersecurity in a defensive role. We're pretty good at creating a junior level software developer in a, I would say, a more back-end role because generally that's where you start before you get good at design. I'd say we're pretty good at creating a Linux systems administrator and an IT help desk person. And I would say that we're getting very good at uh, automation developers and uh, data analysts. Yeah. You're doing RPA? Yeah. Yeah. And Intelligent automation, Mark. You can't. You say RPA, people get upset a little bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I... Uh... I think what's really interesting is that everything you're describing, these are very hard skills, aren't they? These are like these are hard technical vocational skills. No, people just overvalue them. They overvalue themselves. I don't say that in a negative way. It's natural for humanity to overvalue themselves if they've been successful. So if your salary has increased by learning a skill double and you go from 50 to you know 100,000 and then 100,000 to 200,000 because there's no and it's not going up because you're good. It's going up because there's no people like you. This is not enough of you. Like, you know, one of the cool things is seeing like the average uh, salary for an electrician sitting around like 120 grand a year. And then the next jump is them owning their business. That's awesome. So we, we know that a great electrician that's, a, that's working for a tradesperson can make 120 grand a year. We also know that they can make a million bucks a year when they start managing a business. So what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with it, but it's a different problem to the tech problem. The tech salary is going up substantial. So they overvalue the actual skill. So what is robotics process automation? It is the automated clicking of spreadsheets within spreadsheets connected to each other. Uh, and you know what the hard bit is? It's actually not the tools, they're low code platforms. It's getting the process right. I used to call it a macro. Yeah, exactly what it is, yeah. Just build more software developers and we'd have less problems. <laughs> but the, the answer is that the key to success in robotics process automation is the reason it's been created is that they're not gonna it's, it's overcoming a gap. Now, I don't know if it's short-term or long-term. I do know that things like machine reading that in OCR that sit with it are very valuable tools to companies to digitize. So there is a, there is a key tool for it. But you're 100% right on it. 
The, the talent in the market gets overvalued quickly. And why wouldn't you think that you're awesome if you're 25 years old making 200 grand a year? You'd think you're awesome. No, I've never made that much money in my life. You know? So like the challenge is, is that we've got this gap and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and short supply. So then it becomes harder and harder to get to these unicorns. And really what we're not doing is, well, does anything they've built actually work? And any of the technology we build actually work? And does any of the technology actually work? Let's ask those questions before we talk about the individual that's operating them all. Tell me about the humans, how you bring the human skills along through, you know, you've got the 200 hours, uh, making sure when they land in that job and you deploy them, that they can communicate really well and, uh, and they're going to be able to collaborate and, and, and all that good stuff that needs. Like I think of data analysts, right? If you can't, you can analyze all the data, but then so what of it? You need to be able to communicate. Can't develop an insight, you're not a good data analyst is totally. you're 100% right. Like yeah. what's the one act? Like, so there's a very big difference between output. So, you know, productivity for a cybersecurity defender is to lower the amount of instances since being employed. So one thing we do is actually tell them the impact that you should have on your, this business is this. So like, it's really easy to do that in a trade. Is that you fair a, as a measure if the threats are going up 10x? Well, if you know how much you've, well, it's a good question. <laughs> But how many of them are real threats and how many of them are false flags? So <laughs> like that's a, that's a whole podcast on the site. But the, 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 it's a good question. Back next week. I would say that the output of what you do related to a business objective is the most effective thing that we teach. So like the only industry that I know that it's tracked like is sales. So it's like, well, sales are trades, they're tradespeople. I had an interesting conversation with a guy today that runs a big IT company. He's like, I sat down with my friends on the weekend. We're all high-performance salespeople, but we've not told our kids the value of being a sales tradesperson. And we're all unhappy with their lives. Like, um, it's really interesting. But any other job, it's not there. The developers, we look at velocity, but we don't look at, you know, daily active use. So improvement of your product, it's like it's been accepted. We don't connect it. So that's the first thing. we. This is where you sit in the business model. A business or an organization exists to make money or cut costs. Which team are you on? And two, think about the customer. That would be the biggest skill we teach veterans and anyone entering the workforce. The second thing is there is this over uh, complication of how people talk about aptitude, competencies, proficiencies, traits, hard skills, soft skills. So you, like, let's break down a really simple one, the ability to make a decision. We want people that can come in and make a decision. Really? Okay. What is that? Oh, it's a, um, it's a trait. Is it? somewhat correct it actually isn't if you think about there's 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 certain the first part of, is critical thinking well correct so let's take it to what is it from an aptitude strength there is an aptitude strength for logical reasoning or critical thinking verbal reasoning numerical reasoning and abstract reasoning so my first question to you is it a problem that you've solved before is it a problem that's solved by numbers is it a problem that's solved that you don't know how to solve before and is it a problem that's solved by people working together because Based off that aptitude strength, you then decide which filter the decision maker is. Because I could be really, really good at solving this type of problem, but I could be really bad at solving this type of problem. So even if I'm the decision maker, I'm going to make the wrong decision. Because when you say, I want someone to make a decision, that's the, the trait that I want. What you're really saying to me is you want someone to make the right decision always. And be honest about it because you're here to make money. And that's okay. We all benefit if it works. So the second sort of gap of it is, well, 
All right. I think the biggest one of the reasons is I think people want people to be able to make more decisions is that lack of decisions means that we can't move fast and the world is just changing so yeah. fast that we need decisions well, to be made it? quicker. It actually goes back to your point about confidence as well, though. Confidence so you, is massive in decision making. You bank, you take my next point. So the ability to be a good decision maker then is a personality trait. Uh, openness to experience, yes. Extroversion, yes. Why? Because decisions affect people. You can code a machine and it can make a decision for you. You can't code someone. You've got to convince them. Three, low neuroticism. No one wants to follow someone that's flippant or easy or irritable. Uh, and then last but not least, um, highly conscientious. People that are highly conscientious should be making the decisions. They have good attention to detail. Don't let me make all the decisions. I'm conscientious 80% of the time. I'm not conscientious 97% of the time. So if it's boring, I don't care about it. The next sort of thing is, well, okay, let's go to the next jump, which is, do you have the technical competency to make the decision, which is hard skills? And then we go to soft skills. Do you have the decision-making framework to make the decision efficiently and effectively and communicate it? Our biggest problem is when people sit in an interview and they showcase that last one, then they are a decision-maker. And the rest of that shit goes out the window. And that's why we have this problem of dysfunctional companies. And that's just one simple thing. But the challenge is, is that that is all organizational psychology. That's not something they just invented. They are actual categories of what you need to do to work out the type of- How the hell did we get onto this? I'm I don't know. <laughs> oh, I think you asked me about potential, but yeah. I, uh, what I'd really like to ask you now is, so we've, you talked about the testing, the training, they get deployed. Let's talk about the- responsibility of the employer to then take them on the next step of the journey, which is, I think, linked to, uh, you know, I think you're seeing a lot of employers saying that there's skill shortage, but also, on the other hand, not doing a whole lot about it. Well, what can they do about it? Like, you know, um, well, you run your own company, right? Effectively, it's listed and you run it. You're a founder, so like, you're, a, you're a CEO for a long time. You're in charge. Like Clearly from what you said earlier, it was either going to be that or ending up in prison well, being a criminal. There's some things we have in common, Mike. I, the, the, the thing I'm, I would say to you is that you can make decisions. Um, I would say most of our senior executives might have the ambition, the values, including our HR professionals, to make the right decision. But we allow our business model in a services economy to be adjusted by a 90-day cycle. So, uh, do you know much about Marduk? No. Nope. All right. So, I feel like I'm going to find out. Well, Marduk was the I guy. I want to. Well, it's just an ancient story, but effectively, a Mr. Uh, like Babylon sort of era, effectively, Marduk was the emperor, and he was also a god, somewhat. And he convinced the gods to allow him to be the emperor. And he was allowed to be the emperor every year for the next year, as long as um, people asked him at the end of the year if he'd been a good Marduk. So the idea that humans adjust themselves off a year is a very, very, very old idea. And the idea that the market can decide if you've been good or not or bad, it's the same thing about Santa Claus, by the way, um, is very powerful. So why the hell have we put ourselves on a 90-day cycle? Because we know that it takes 200 hours to train someone, so it takes roughly 12 weeks. So how the hell could you convince your company to make a more than a quarter investment? That is by that, yeah, like, that's, no, the, that's the I, hardest I, thing. I feel intuitively 
Yeah. Uh, uh, the, no one would come out and say this. No employer is going to say this. I think there's a huge n- number of employers who are very, very fearful, particularly in digital, yeah. they are going to train people up and then they're going to they're going to go, they're going to go and leave. Of course it would be. There's a huge shortage. But they sort of created it and then put the work overseas. And they're not making stuff here. If you start making stuff here, people don't just do the work for money. That's what I've learned. I've learned that if you've got a job that you can come in and you can build things, not just administrate some systems, not just analyze some systems, you can actually build things for customers and you have direct contact with those customers, you love the work that you do. I don't see many unhappy tradies. The only time I've seen them uh, unhappy- That's what's, uh, that, that is very, very possible in software development. I feel that's what our company does. Well, yeah, like I've got, like I know that I can't afford half the talent that I've got. Why are they still there? Working for someone as crazy as me. It's not me. Oh, you'd be easy to work for, I'm sure. No, definitely not. <laughs> uh, it's it's not it's it's not me. It's that they're having an impact with things that they're making. It's really simple. It's like, hey, you remember like when you you see this story where you jump in the pool, right? And you're like, hey, mom, can you watch me do this jump in the pool? It's the same with, uh, hey, this is what I learned at school this week. Can I show you what I made? That's oh, what that you're is, doing. That is like, one of the five fundamental human traits yeah, is to, it, is to uh, uh, avoid embarrassment and impress others. It's, well, it's part of, part you know of us. Do you know how um, important it is for someone to go from a tribe that they work in back to their other tribe and be proud of what they do? Uh, and that's why Australia is losing a, a good load of its mid-level engineering talent to the valley. Um, so, And they're not losing it because of the money. They're losing it because they want to have an impact. You know, here we have very few companies that build their own products. You know, you've got Safety Culture, Canva, Alassie, and yourself. Now, we build our own stuff. We're a bit smaller, a lot smaller, I would suggest. But the, but the power of people building their own stuff means that you don't have to wait for the bonus check at the end of the year to know what your value is in this organization. And that value is not coming from me going, go for it. It's coming from a customer going, I dealt with this today. Hey, that's my feature. Hey, that's working. And it got 100 people into jobs. That's pretty powerful stuff it's for incredibly, a 24 year old. That's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Come back to the employer. Tell me about the employer. Well, I don't think- How are you solving for that? Uh, the, the thing to solve is talent acceptance and selling to them. So <laughs> the first thing is selling to them. How do you sell, the difference between selling to Australians- I guess it's when you, tell us what's, the, what's the, essentially the value proposition when you, when you take the trained up person through. The sales pitch or the value proposition? You can take take them both. Well, like we've pitched 17,000 times and maybe have 200 customers. So maybe I'm really bad at selling or maybe it's really hard to sell. The sales pitch is that uh, we're going to give you someone that you need for the skill gap that you've identified. The difference is it's not going to look the same, but we're going to show you data that says that they're actually great talent based off the market and based off your workforce. That means that you decide. So you can test as many people as you want and we're going to produce this talent pool for you. We're also going to produce that talent pool internally too. So you can keep your staff. Why do we do those two things? The biggest challenge that we have for employees was talent acceptance. It's very, very easy to get a 10 to 20 person program. It's very, very hard to scale it to the 500 that they need or the amount that they could bring the work back or start the work, right? So how do you lower that risk? You test more people, show them the data that they can model themselves. And then the real thing is, is talent acceptance. The, the way that we've improved talent acceptance is frankly by putting veterans in in groups and not one by one. If you do it one by one and you don't give them the structure and you don't give them the training, uh, then they just go, why am I working here? 
this isn't functional. So uh, eventually that catches on. So you've got this idea where I've done the training, you've done the training. Welcome to the club. Like we've done the same training. So you've created a bond between them and their future employee. The second thing we do is uh, we go, hey, we're going to keep training you. And uh, the third thing we do is we're going we're gonna to let you work in teams uh, with people that care. The challenges that you've got with companies is more about how they make decisions, right? In the US, it's consensus circles. In Australia, you don't, it's consensus avoidance. So if they get into a circle of Australian executives, it'll never come out of it. So you've just got to tackle that executive and push something through that's a proof of concept in order for them to trial it. But it all comes back to the biggest challenge that we really face is that we're, if you want to invest in people, it's going to take longer than 90 days. But we've created these problems for ourselves. The way that founder CEOs, I think, are getting around it is just like if they're listed, companies don't, don't know what makes it special. Is it, the, is it the, How special is the CEO? So you get a little bit more freedom. But if you're a listed CEO in Australia and in finance or mining, good luck trying to make drastic changes. The mining industry is really interesting. Like I was speaking to BHP yesterday. Effectively, every time they start a new project, they can reset themselves. And it's like an investment. So what that means is that they can change things every time. But in like the predominantly of government services, professional services, managed services, um, education, all of these other industries, the simple thing is that they operate quarterly <laughs> And no one's tracking it, but they force themselves to it. Um, so although I think the answers are there and they know what's doing right and there's not any malice, they've created a system which just stops them from making any changes. One of the last things I wanted to ask you about, we've talked about it before, it's getting more and more airtime actually, it's getting more and more voice, is looking at the apprenticeship model for digital and for, for technology. And there's an article in the AFR this morning. Do you see the apprenticeship as being something that translates well to the digital world? Yeah, it's a trade. I think what's really interesting is where apprenticeships continue to work well and thrive is obviously more in the traditional trades, right? And often there's genuinely a case that the guy that runs his building company or construction company or in the traditional trades, he was a tradie, right, as well. So it's it's sort of generational and there's a sense of community about it. And maybe because technical and digital hasn't been around as long, we just don't have that same cultural side that there's actually a part of this, which is giving back. Yeah. Well, we're not allowing them to be adults till they're 26. The question is if that everyone at school is in school is set up to get you through to university and that people leaving at 16 are looked down upon, um, and the Do you think we're trying to are we protect trying to protect the kids so much in in then, which is actually having a very counterproductive well, in effect on them? Why was university created? Do you know? <laughs> I know you're gonna tell me. Well, university was created because it comes from the word universal. Universal means rounded person. You're supposed to attend university after earning a trade. What you're actually supposed to learn at university is a utopia of ideas, arguments, and research. It actually allows you to contribute back towards society, but only after you've been accountable. We've changed that narrative. We're now saying that if you go to university, you have a better chance of getting a job. Well, no, we don't. 4.7 years until you get a job requisite of salary that you thought you would get as a graduate at the end of university, all graduate programs are shrunk because they provide no skills. And as much as they'll tell me that it isn't a vocation, it's an education, I would like to suggest that uh, if you're telling a kid that they can be a PE teacher at the start of learning a Bachelor of Education, then you're selling a vocation, as much as you like to think you're not. And to me, that's really upsetting because you're supposed to go there to think, 
How the hell can you think if you haven't been responsible yet? The one thing that the army does is it makes you more accountable for people around you. It teaches you accountability of people around you whilst it teaches you accountability of yourself. So one thing anyone could never say that they don't do, they do do it. Um, it really, really upsets me. Like I, you know, you've got one to five people between 21 to 25 being diagnosed with a mental illness. You've got effectively a, a high underemployment rate even before the pandemic is around 36%. So they're doing jobs that aren't requisite of the salary. And you've got, you know, like I'll take my friends that were engineers and went to university, became structural engineers. So, you know, one of the oddest things to me is how they're three or four times wealthier than their parents within a decade. And they're still upset. They're just upset. I don't know why they're upset. They're just upset. And I, you know, I find that all very odd. And what I actually think it is, is we're using it as a substitute for becoming an adult and going out and trying in the world. But the idea of university is actually a powerful one at the right time. I could sit here for a few more hours with you, but I'm just going to ask you one more thing, which is I want to ask you if there was one, if there was one thing that, you know, I think that we've talked about a lot of things that you see as fundamentally broken. If there's one thing that you could change in the whole system of skills and workforce and society, what would it be? So I, I everyone, I'm very optimistic because if I'm not optimistic and I'm not the person that's sensible, then, you know, good luck. There's a group of things I would change, but they all, come from the same area. We can still change it, but we're running out of time. We've got COVID now. We're running, well, that's actually an, an opportunity to change it, which is a positive thing. That was to see, there's your optimism coming through. But we're running out of time, Mark. And we're running out of time because um, really, really simple things aren't being said to people anymore. The first thing is stop being worried about ideas Learn to be responsible and learn some values first. You're way more competent at something. You can have your impact on the community way stronger. Just look at the case of us. You know, did we whinge that veterans are being mistreated or did we try to do something? And if we were technologists at the start, we could have done this even faster. The second thing is, which I find is really, really interesting, is at some point, in order to change where we're going, everyone needs to take risk. So I need to take risk and say, I'm gonna learn technology, even though it terrifies me. I'm gonna take risk and say, I'm gonna start a company, even though it's a recession. You know, And as a company, I'm gonna take risk and remove experience and look at people's potential because the economics are telling me that I can't make any other decision. If we do those things, We'll solve a lot of problems quickly, very quickly, because the, the technology has allowed us to do it. The final thing for me is, you know, if you're weak and ashamed and you're sitting in a position where you can make a choice between putting your head between your legs and letting it blow over and let someone else deal with it, then it's going to affect your kids and their kids. Don't do that. Stand up for what you know and what is right. Be fierce? Well, we call it be fierce, but I just think it's their duty. I think one of the things that resonates with millennials that gets completely misconstrued is that the idea that they want to care for other people. No, people 
should care about themselves and everyone else. And this is a clear case that if we had everyone doing that, we had data driving it, we had us looking at an optimistic and positive outset than a negative. It's like fixing climate change is similar, right? Somewhat. I don't know enough about climate change. I just know enough about this one thing. Uh, and But that's what I would say. We're running out of time. We need to take risk. We need to look at the look at it and saying that nothing else has worked, the, the thing's collapsed, and we can solve it. You know, humanity solved a lot of things. And why is it collapsed? Don't be hard on yourself. We've only been doing IT for 40-something years. Like we don't usually get it right for 100 years. We might get it right at year 60 this time. So um, that's my take on it. I, 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 I've enjoyed our conversation. No, it's been amazing. Uh, it's been just so much fun talking to a monster like you. Maybe. We'll see. After a few uh, wines, so mate, I'm a different do you guy. Want, do, you want, we, do you want to go for a drink? Sure. Okay, let's yeah. do it. Thanks so much for coming on. It was just mind-blowing and very, very inspiring. I really feel that at this time, we actually really, really need people like you who are so brave and courageous to speak up and certainly not afraid to challenge the status quo. So thank but, you. I appreciate it. People like me need people like you to look up to too, Mark. Otherwise, I wouldn't think that creating a business is possible. So, Thanks, Tom. That was kind. Mm.